Um, We're continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes, and uh, we're on Ecclesiastes chapter 4, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles or tap there on your phones, it's always a good idea that you have your Bible open and can just make sure that what I'm telling you is what is actually in the Scripture. Um, And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you don't have a Bible at all, um, then whatever Bible you find in the seat in front of you is yours to take. Um, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, um, Solomon is going to shift a little bit away from sort of the bigger, deeper um, philosophical questions to a very practical question of human existence. Um, there's a reality TV show that's shot very often in the Canadian wilderness. I think the first season started on Vancouver Island. And the premise of this reality TV show is that they drop you off in the midst of some uninhabited tract of land with 10 items of survival gear. Some cameras, so that we can watch you suffer. Um, And a satellite phone that you can only use if you want to quit. And they drop nine other people off in similarly isolated forsaken tracts of wilderness, nowhere near you, and now your job in this reality TV show is to avoid dying or quitting before the other nine people do, and there are also cougars and bears, and the show is called Alone, because that's the whole premise, and of course, the, the idea of a Survivor show isn't new. I think Survivor is on its 44th season, if you can imagine. But on Survivor Island, you have other people. In fact, as I understand it, because I've never actually watched an entire episode of Survivor, the main attraction of Survivor is the interpersonal dynamics of the contestants. Life on Survivor Island may be difficult. It may be physically and emotionally traumatic. But at least you have a team. At least you have each other. You have companionship to get you through it. And and deep bonds are formed when we survive things together, when we lift each other up, and when we can share our struggles. The makers of this new show saw that Survivor had allowed the contestants to keep the most important aspect of our survival, companionship. And so for our entertainment, they stripped that away. They, in alone, the single biggest challenge you face is that you are completely isolated, that you are alone. That's the whole premise. The challenge to survive is just as hard. It's just as physically and emotionally traumatic. But now you have to face it in complete isolation. It becomes psychologically traumatic. And there are hardened military and survival experts that have been broken down to tears, not because they couldn't beat the wilderness, but because they were alone for weeks and months on end, trying to outlast the other contestants. Who comes up with this stuff? This is just like torture. Now, I don't have to wonder or speculate. I know that many people here are lis- and who are listening online as well are facing pain and futility of feeling alone. Life is hard enough to survive, but too often we are surviving it alone, it feels. Not just a few days, not even just a couple of months on a TV show, but sometimes for some of us it feels like years of being unsupported, feeling unsafe, feeling unwanted. You may be surrounded by people. You may be successful at the peak of your career. You may even have a church full of people around you right now, but you still feel cut off. 
And, and research shows that counterintuitively, the highest rates of feelings of loneliness are in the densest urban centers. Where the most people are, people feel the most alone. Where the most opportunity is, people feel the most neglected. If you Google the loneliest generation, you will find a bunch of statistics. The first 10 pages or so will fill up for you. And if we are to believe the statistics coming at us from every direction, over the last few years, it tells us the same story over and over again. Millennials are almost twice as lonely as boomers and Gen Xers, and Gen Z experiences three times as much long-term chronic loneliness. A study in 2021 found that less than 50% of boomers and Gen X experience regular feelings of loneliness, compared to 71% of millennials and 80% of Gen Z. 75% of Gen Z say they have left a job due to mental health. And that's up from only 50% of millennials and less than 35% of any previous generation. These are pretty startling statistics. It means that four out of five Gen Z regularly experience loneliness, and three out of four have quit their job for mental health reasons. Those are escalating statistics on loneliness. And this is not a rant against Gen Z. You can find those lots of places. But here's the reality. Boomers and Gen Xers are the parents, politicians, and business owners who've created the environment that Gen Z despairs in. We created it, and they can't cope with what we have left them. We have left them a culture where they cannot find a coherent, stable, safe world. And so they are lonely, they're disillusioned, they're isolated. Even in the most connected generation, they are a smartphone away from the entire world. And they're the loneliest people on the planet. That's a problem. Loneliness and isolation are becoming increasingly chronic, but they're not new problems. We've been studying Ecclesiastes, and we've learned that the Bible isn't just trying to tell us how the world is meant to be or why it should be good because of what God intended for it. The Bible acknowledges exactly how the world is. Loneliness is real. Isolation is real. Koaleth, the teacher, Ecclesiastes, who's guiding us on this examination of life under the sun, can't avoid this observation that statisticians and psychologists are seeing today. He sees it in chapter 4. We are isolated and estranged from each other. Loneliness creates and exaggerates the futility in our life. But where can we find the answer as we ransack this life under the sun looking for solutions? And so as I read through each section of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, what we want to pick up on here is, is listening to how Solomon observes the way isolation and loneliness affect our lives. He's going to address the theme of isolation for three different kinds of people and the effect of their loneliness. In verse 1 to 3, for people who are suffering oppression, isolation intensifies our pain. In verse 4 to 8, for regular working class people, isolation undermines our satisfaction. In verses 13 to 16, for people who have achieved greatness, isolation erases our achievements. This is what we'll be looking at in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and then some solutions that come from where Solomon sees a glimmer of light in the darkness. Let's pray before we 
open God's word specifically. Father God, we're about to read your word. It's been preserved for us by your Holy Spirit. It requires your Holy Spirit for us to understand it. And so I pray for myself and for those that are listening that uh, by your Holy Spirit we would know the message that you would have for us here today and uh, that we would lean into the gracious, Christ-centered and redeeming solution that you've offered us and our neighbors and our community and our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3, this is the first segment that we'll take in parts. Isolation intensifies our pain. Solomon writes, I looked again. Again, he's looking over experiences of his life as the king of Israel and everything that he studied. He says, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who had never existed, who had never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Now, when you read that at first glance, it seems like Solomon is addressing the problem of oppression. When one group of people in power oppresses another group of people without power, and He will address that, and we'll get to the injustice and oppression later on in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a real problem. There's there's no time in history. There's no geographical location. There's no political or communal arrangement that has existed without oppression. We're aware of, you know, our history of colonization and colonialism and slavery and the present-day realities of human trafficking that we just prayed for, that Fight for Freedom is working against. And if we're paying attention to the labels on our electronic devices, we understand the economic disparity between the northern and the southern hemisphere and the poverty wages that are paid in order to feed the consumer demands of the northern hemisphere. NGOs bring to light the oppression of ethnic groups like the Muslim Uyghurs in China, while at the same time, those same ethnic groups in their countries are oppressing other groups. And so in one country, you're oppressed, and in another country, you're the oppressor. Oppression and justice are important things to understand. And as I say, Solomon's going to tackle them. But what is really in view in these sentences here, what, what could rival the evil of oppression itself, what could make oppression even worse, the teacher observes, is being oppressed and alone. Oppression is bad enough, but he sees these people have no one to comfort them. Twice he says of the oppressed that they were alone and uncomforted. See, the oppressed in the world are too often also the marginalized. The very people who need help don't have it. Marginalization or isolation amplifies the pain of injustice and oppression. Financially, socially, physically, emotionally, politically oppressed are suffering even more because they too often suffer alone and without comfort. Think of your own life. Think of times when you felt the weight that you were bearing of oppression, of injustice, of suffering... And at those seasons in your life when you most needed comfort, it seemed the farthest away. And it was actually the isolation that magnified what you were going through. Just like those survival guys in the middle of Vancouver Island or in the Arctic. It's the isolation that amplifies the pain of what we are experiencing. 
Do we not long for comfort and for companionship at those moments? Without a comforter, are they not all the harder and more intense to bear? And the preacher concludes, and maybe you've concluded at times in your own life, I'm better off dead than facing this alone. In fact, better that I never even was born than to try to survive life without companionship and a comforter. So the first problem of isolation is it intensifies our pain. Loneliness is a real problem to the marginalized. I imagine that most of us can see or have felt maybe feeling how loneliness can intensify that pain of people who are suffering. But what about people who are not suffering? What about just normal, middle-class, working-class people just trying to get on with life? Solomon addresses them too. Verse 4, he continues, he says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. And then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure for? This too is vanity and a grievous task. So when Solomon talks about labor here, we notice he includes every kind of activity we do in order to provide for ourselves, in order to provide comfort, in order to feel like we've made it in the world. Not just our career or a job, but all the things we do to achieve what life has to offer. And Solomon doesn't think work is a bad thing. In verse 5, he says it's a fool who folds his hand and doesn't do anything. He's going to just basically devour himself into poverty. Once everything in the house is gone, he's got nothing left to eat. But on the other hand, working so hard, double-fisted labor and striving without any rest is vanity as well. If we're working for ourselves, by ourselves, it's a futile task of our, to accomplish our satisfaction. There's two main problems with labor. First of all, he says that laboring out of rivalry with others isolates us. It drives a wedge between us and our neighbors when we work competitively against them. They say you can't climb the corporate ladder without stepping on the people below you. And if you're working at keeping up with the Joneses and you succeed, eventually you surpass the Joneses. And we see this culturally as the gap between the rich and the poor gets wider and wider and wider. So that we isolate ourselves in these class strati, these, these layers of class economics alone. We see this economic gap right here in Halliburton as the cost of living, of having a home or even apartments fading out of reach for many locals. Maybe your economic situation has you feeling isolated from people and opportunities, and that sense of isolation is robbing any satisfaction out of your career and your work. But secondly, Solomon identifies how even if you are working and accumulating a good amount, but it's all for yourself, then the satisfaction is robbed. This man has no son, no brother, no family. He's working away, he's accumulating, he's acquiring, but he has no one to enjoy it with. I mean, we're told, get an education. They say, get a job. Get an education, get a job, it'll be great, you'll succeed. And so we get an education, and we get a job, and we get the car, and we get the house, and we look around, and our greatest disappointment is that we're alone. Don't have any satisfying relationships. You can't just throw yourself deeper into your work as a solution to loneliness. In fact, loneliness 
Like suffering just makes your job and your career and your accumulation all the more bitter because you have no one to share it with. But there's a third type of person and a third effect of isolation that Solomon also examines at the end of chapter 4. He says, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him, and there's no end to all the people to all who were before him, and even the ones who will later not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. Well, what's the story that Solomon is telling here? He perhaps maybe has his father David and himself in mind here. He describes a scenario where an old king eventually gets replaced by a poor peasant boy. The the boy rises up through society to the very throne and all the living under the sun throng to his side. He's surrounded by adoring followers. There's no end to all the people, either the ones who came before and loved him, but Solomon says there's also no end to the ones who will come later and not be happy with him and forget him. In other words, just like the king he replaced, the zero to hero, the, the Mr. Popular will fade into obscurity himself. And the lesson here is it's lonely even at the top. You think, if I can just reach the top, if I could be popular, if I could be successful, if I could be like a movie star, if I could be like Elon Musk or whatever, then they surely cannot be forgotten and alone and left in futility. But Solomon says, grand achievements are fleeting, and even if you are surrounded at a time by adoring fans, you may be the loneliest person in the country. Just ask a few movie stars or billionaires if that can be true. I suspect that Elon Musk is a lonely guy. I don't know that for sure. We don't hang out. (laughs) Just to clarify, I know you probably thought that was true. But But sometimes there's something in his tweets and in his social media posts that just seem to me to carry a cry for attention. Like he just still doesn't quite have what it is that he's looking for even though he's one of the richest guys on earth. And I think in 50 or 60 years, you can ask your grandkids or your great-grandkids who Elon Musk is, and they won't even know. Just like the Rothschilds. Who? Exactly. Used to be the richest family on the planet. Nobody under 30 here even knows who they are. So what is the answer under the sun, then? If loneliness and isolation are the things that Solomon sees that weigh on the human heart, and I think we can all agree we've experienced it, it makes our oppression more painful. It makes our work futile. It makes our achievements empty if we are alone. They have no meaning, and we suffer. Well, the only answer that Solomon can see under the sun is in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him who overpowers. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So so Solomon sees the curse of isolation, and he sees the remedy is companionship. Don't be alone. We're better together. If we band together, we can face oppressors and not be overpowered. 
The bond of multiple friendships is strong. Our labor is more fulfilling. We can pick each other up if we stumble. But as with most of Solomon's observations, he's only catching a glimpse of deeper spiritual realities. As he observes this is the truth in the physical world, it's only a, it's only a, a very dim beam of light that points us at something much greater. Solomon is only catching a glimpse as he observes life. He sees there's something moving in deeper currents beneath the surface of common experience we all share. And as we've already seen in earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is observing, and you can draw direct connections to, is Solomon is observing the effects of Eden and our fall. Solomon's observations are about the curse of sin. Being alone is the first thing that God declared was not good. Even in the Garden of Eden, sharing an unbroken relationship with his creator, God said of Adam, it is not good that man should be alone, in Genesis 2.18. So here Solomon sees loneliness. All he's doing is affirming what God has already said. We were not meant to be alone. It's not good that we would be alone. Adam had all the animals of the world around him, but he needed a real companion. He didn't need a pet. And there's a whole other lesson there for our culture and our growing obsession with and personification of pets, I think. People are clinging to pets as an answer for a lack of relationship with human beings. Not everybody. Not everybody. And I get it. I get it that people might let you down. And I'm not saying that support animals don't serve a purpose. I get as much joy out of a cute cat video as the next guy. I mean, television advertisers should learn that the only thing that makes a good TV commercial is cute animals. It's the only thing that makes them watchable. But unlike as we've seen in the pet industry in our culture, we cannot put our hope in our pets. God did not design us for satisfactory relationships with animals. If we are turning to animals to meet the needs of companionship, then that is a sign that proper relationships are being neglected, avoided, or broken. So don't settle for a dog. God has far more intended for you than walking the dog and far more flourishing and joy in real human relationship. Notice that God says all of this before the fall. If isolation and loneliness was considered bad by God before sin cursed the world, how bad can you imagine it got afterwards? And Solomon gave us some indications of that. Because now there's separation from God and strife in our relationships and power is corrupted to oppression and thorns and difficulties impede our work, making it more difficult to bear on our own. If being alone was bad before the curse, it is intensified in every possible way under the sun with the curse. And so if the effect of the fall is going to be reversed, if if Solomon is identifying an Edenic problem that has been intensified by our sin, if our solution is going to be ultimately eliminated, it requires far more radical and final and redeeming a solution than just having someone to keep warm with at night. 
And this is where we find there actually is good news. What Solomon sees dimly in the old covenant under the curse, we see clearly in the gospel and in the new covenant. The redemptive plan of God is very much aimed at putting an end to our isolation and an end to our feeling of being disconnected and disintegrated from the community around us. God's plan is to reintegrate and reconnect our soul and our spirit to him and our entire sense of being and belonging to brothers and sisters around us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died in order to unite people to himself and to each other. A survey of the whole New Testament from Matthew to Revelation reveals a common theme that is relentlessly repeating itself. If you've read the New Testament often and lately, if you just step back and you think of Matthew to Revelation and you think of all the things that are said in the New Testament and all the letters over and over and over again, it would not be an exaggeration that the majority focus of the New Testament is largely about living together again in community with God as our Father and with fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters. Gospel after gospel, letter after letter, is the same message. I have made you my children. I am your father. I have given you this church. You are to live together, one another, as a new family, a new kingdom, a new community, a new covenant people. You are one body. Just a sampling. Jesus says that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will... Give us the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to dwell with us and in us. He tells his disciples that his desire is to reunite us with himself and the Father by the Spirit in John 17. We're told that Jesus died for this purpose, that he might bring us to God in 1 Peter 3.18. Paul says that we are redeemed so that we might receive adoptions as sons in Galatians 4.5. We're told that Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility to create for himself one new mankind in Ephesians 2.15. Without ethnic, social, or economic, or class distinctions in Galatians 3.28 and James 2.1-3, we are one body knit together, held together at every joint when working properly and builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4.16. We belong to one another and are one body with Christ and each other in Romans 12.5. In addition to being called a kingdom, a family, a body, a church, we're also given over 60 one another commands and instructions that can only be fulfilled if we we embrace this new redeemed community that God is in the process of creating for himself and for us. If you've read even a little tiny bit of the New Testament, you know I could go on and on with verse after verse. Once you get past the Gospels that lay the foundation for this new community, the entire New Testament can faithfully be described as a handbook for how to live together in the healthiest, most authentic, most transparent, grace-filled, mercy-filled, burden-lifting community ever established. It's how to live together as the church. After our salvation and our spiritual reunion with God through Christ, the church is intended to be the place of our gospel mission, but also the place of gospel community and family. Christians belong to Christ and to each other. We belong together like like jam and peanut butter. The, The miracle of unity and reconciliation in the church is our gospel testimony. It's our mission. Our very mission as a church is to be the best possible community of love that the planet has ever seen, and they'll see that community of love and burden bearing and fellowship, and they will think, what is that thing? And not just this world, but Ephesians 3.10 says the powers and principalities in the heaven look on 
at the mystery of God at work in the church. The mystery of men and women of all ethnicities, of all social classes, of the rich and the poor, the well and the ill, the old and the young. It doesn't matter. They are all one in the church, and the heavenly powers and principalities marvel at the wisdom of God in being able to create this through what his son did on the cross and by his grace. And that's where our answer lies. The pain of isolation in this life under the sun is real. But as Solomon has shown in each of his other investigations through the book so far, the solution to our futility is not ultimately found under the sun. We don't look to the created, but to the creator. God sent his son to reintegrate us and to reunite us, to bring us into a new family unlike any other on earth, and that has continued on for 2,000 years and will continue on until the end of days and beyond the end of days. Revelation chapter 7 gives us a picture of every Christian fully clothed and fully united with God. Everyone dressed in white, no sin, no strife, no harm, no more hunger, no more thirst. Illness and oppression is gone. Our work will be delightful again, not futile. We'll be serving a king who will never be forgotten. His achievements will be celebrated for eternity. His kingdom is never passing away into obscurity, but continuing and fulfilled in glory. This is what God has in mind, not people alone, but people together. But are we there yet? Because I know what you're thinking. (laughs) I know, because I'm part of the church too. We're not there yet. We're not at Revelation 7 and 21 yet. As a pastor of a church, I'm fully aware, more than aware than you, that the church is not perfect. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul, Peter, and James to train and shepherd imperfect and messy churches like us. That's why the New Testament was written, because God has put us together, but he knows we're still under the sun. He knows we're still in our flesh. The church is not yet robed in perfect white. Even saints are still being saved by grace. The curse of the world and our sin can affect how people respond to you the same way it affects you. So I get it. I know you're sitting there saying, Paul, you have painted a beautiful picture of the church, but I've been in church and it's wounded me. People that are sitting right here with me in this room have really cut deep. And I know, we all know, it is possible to still feel lonely even in God's redeemed community of the church. I'm not unaware of that fact. But why is that? It's because we're still living out our lives under the sun. You are still living out your life under the sun too. We feel the cultural pressures and expectations of what everybody else seems to have around us, and we then feel disenfranchised because we don't have it, or we don't think we do. We carry our own histories of brokenness and our own experiences with other people with us, and we bring that into every other relationship we encounter. We are wrestling in our own seasons with unsatisfied desires and timid faith, and yet God has created for us this family, this body, this community, as the means by which he intends his grace and his correction to us and the correction of our isolation. So let's then commit as brothers and sisters together to battling the sinful effects of marginalization of loneliness, even and especially as we find it in the church. And I say this from both directions. This is not, I know all the lonely people out there are saying, yeah, you tell them, Paul, you tell them how the church has got to do a better job. This needs to be worked on from both directions. Okay? 
And this is hard to explain. It's not necessarily easy for people to hear. But there is a biblical calling to both the isolated and to the members of the body to behave better with each other. We need to behave better. We need to be, have more compassion. We need to have more concern. We need to be more aware of the marginalized and the isolated. And the isolated and the marginalized need to be better at embracing and loving the body of Christ. The lonely and the marginalized must not despise or neglect the common grace that God has provided in his church, the proximity to other believers, the sympathetic ears and the serving hands that are around, even if they need to be nudged, even if they need to be reminded. There are life groups to join in people's homes or host in your own. There are ministries you are called to participate in. There are lunches to invite people to. There are chores to share or to lend a hand with. All of our hearts must guard against making our circumstances an excuse to withdraw ourselves or to judge others. And then on the other hand, as a wider church body, we have all these 60 one another commands. We have these 27 inspired books of the New Testament that call us to watch out for the marginalized, to have our radar on, to to be sensitive to those that are lonely, to identify the poor in spirit, to be ready to extend comfort, to give generously of our time to those who are lacking, to feel what every part of the body is feeling and not think that just because my part of the body feels pretty good that I don't have to feel the suffering of others. When one part suffers, we all suffer together. And so the whole body has to do better as well. To bear that burden of loneliness and marginalization and isolation that too many feel. And in so doing, we will fulfill the law of Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians 6.2. We must see loneliness and isolation for what it is, what Solomon sought to be, a grievous evil under the sun, a burden that too many bear and strive for. Fight for gospel community with each other, and every person who you see lacks it. Don't take gospel community for granted, but strive for it in every relationship that you have, inside of these walls and online. The futility of pain and of loneliness should drive those that are searching towards finding satisfaction and restored unity in Jesus and his church. And, and for those that are in this community, and that Know this, the memory of your loneliness and isolation should drive us who are already here and feeling satisfied, should drive us towards protecting and expanding the boundaries of this redeemed community so that more people can share in what we have found, the grace of God and the companionship of his Holy Spirit and the companionship of the brothers and sisters that he's given us and made us a part of. We're not there yet, the church on planet Earth or the church lakeside. We're not perfect. We're not at the full consummation of unity that God has in store for us. But we are the only spirit-empowered, grace-filled, God-forgiven body of Christ on the planet. And if there's anybody out there that is ever going to feel comfort This is the only place they're going to find it. It should be the only place that they find it. We should not be less comfortable, less merciful, less inviting, less satisfying than McKex or whatever online chat room they're in or whatever hobby they're participating in. The church is God's family. It is the place where he is undoing the curse of Eden, where he is undoing the loneliness and the isolation and the disintegration that we all feel. And so we all 
as brothers and sisters, have to do our part to fight this loneliness. It is a grievous evil. It's not just an inconvenience, it's evil. And it's our job to be the comforter to those who need comfort, to be companionship to those who are lonely. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for this word. We thank you for our own personal experiences, which in Corinthians we are told that we are given these experiences so that we may comfort others in the way that we have been comforted. Think about that. That we have experienced loneliness. We have been hurt by the church. We've been hurt by Christians. We've been marginalized. We've been isolated. We've suffered. And we have experienced those things so that we might comfort others in like way that we have been comforted by you. And so, Father, teach us to lean into the comfort that is in your church, the common means of grace that flow through your people, the comfort of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done to break down the wall of hostility and to unite us again so that we need never feel separated, to give us brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and spiritual mothers and fathers to care for us. Father, we thank you that you have done this, that that your love for us is to reintegrate and reunite us with yourself and with each other. And Father, let us take the challenge as a church, whether we are the isolated or the isolating, to break down that wall just as Jesus did, to work hard at relationship so that we might put on display the goodness of your gospel and what you have in store for the rest of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.